Seem possible that it's uh, July Fourth weekend? Wow! Oh yeah, let's do take offering. Okay, let's do that. If Pastor Jeff gets back and he gets word that we didn't receive offerings while he was gone, he'll say we're not going to have that guy around again. Sherry and I got out and just drove out into the country yesterday and thoroughly enjoyed this incredible season of the year and. We were saying to one another, you know, it seems like yesterday we were anxiously awaiting summer, and now we're midway into summer. It comes so quickly, doesn't it? Enjoy it. I hope you've got some plans for family or friends over the next few days, and can really enjoy this wonderful season of the year. We're in Luke 10 this morning, and following the pattern that Jeff has set for the preaching year. We're going to be thinking together about the mission of the sent. You say, who in the world of the sent? That's us. The mission of the sent. As we established at the outset of our study last Sunday morning, Jesus has now entered a new and um, an even more resolute season in his earthly ministry. He's fixed his gaze on Jerusalem and the cross, the cross that awaits him there. And this being the case, his precious little time must now be focused, and he focuses it keenly on the men immediately around him, the twelve. But as we're going to see this morning, we sometimes forget that the disciples were a much larger group than just the twelve. The twelve are the apostles, but today we're going to find Jesus sending out 72 others, that is, in addition to the twelve, all of whom are sent by him as his disciples. It had been two years plus since Christ had called the twelve to leave their workaday worlds, their occupations, their families, and to follow him to a grand venture, on a grand venture that he uh, described variously as fishing for men or announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. And during those two years, these men had been part of a mission so extraordinary that nothing they had seen or even heard about could have prepared them for the experiences they were about to have. They had been front and center during those years for the healing of lepers, paraplegics, the lame, the blind. They'd been present for the dramatic release of those who had been under the dominion, the power of demons all of their lives. They had been at sea with Jesus the day he commanded the wind and the waves to be calm. And they had seen him raise the dead on more than one occasion. And on occasion, they themselves had been the vehicles that Jesus chose to use to perform utterly impossible miracles. But I guess that's the nature of miracles, isn't it? They're impossible. Like the day he had told them to distribute five loaves and two fish among a crowd of 5,000 plus men, plus the women and the children who were present. And not only had there been enough to go around, but when they were done, they picked up, you remember, they picked up 12 baskets full of that which was left over. And yet as remarkable as all that had been, what was about to take place would involve them in Christ's mission in a still more radical and a much more personal way. In Luke 9 and again in Luke 10, we find Jesus commissioning his disciples and sending them out to 
further the heavenly mission that he had already begun. No longer would they be astonished observers of his work. From this point on, they would be authorized partners in a mission that they never could have imagined that they would one day be participating in. In Luke 9.1, we read, One day Jesus called together his twelve apostles, gave them power and authority to cast out demons and to heal all diseases. And then he sent them out to tell everyone about the coming of the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. In Luke 10, our text for today, we read, The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs. Go now, he told them, and remember that I am sending you. Can you imagine what it might have felt like for the 12, for the 72? One day they're watching with complete awe as Jesus is healing and casting out demons, as he fed thousands with a sack lunch and proclaimed in authoritative tones that the kingdom of God, the kingdom the Jews had been waiting for for hundreds of years, was now right here at hand. And then the next day, he turned to them and he said, now you do it. You go. You share the good news of God's kingdom. You demonstrate the power of God in your age. And he didn't stop with the 12. Nor did he stop with the 72. In the closing chapter of his gospel, Luke tells us that in the days following the resurrection, Christ appeared before his followers who were gathered in Jerusalem, and he extended this same commission to each and every one of them. He said to them, with my authority, take this message of repentance to all the nations. You are my witnesses of all these things, and now I will send my Holy Spirit, and he will come from heaven and fill you with the power, the power necessary for the fulfillment of that mission. You know, as I do, that today, 2,000 plus years later, the mission that Christ gave to the 12 and to the 72 and to the many following his resurrection is the same mission that he's given to the church for our age as well. How has that mission fared? How has that mission fared? Richard Malcolm is the author of a little book that obviously Pastor Jeff really likes because I was in his office the other day. He's got a whole stack of these little books by Richard Malcolm entitled Jesus, A Very Short Introduction. So you're probably familiar with this, but this is the opening paragraph of Malcolm's little book, Jesus, A Very Short Introduction. He writes, two billion people today, billion people today identify themselves as Christians. Such followers of Jesus are now more numerous and make up a greater proportion of the world's population than ever before. It is estimated that they are increasing by some, ready, 70,000 people a day. This growth of Christianity is taking place despite its decline in the West. That's where you and I live. And all this is, is taking place in response to the mission that Christ assigned to us, his church, and in anticipation of his soon return to gather his people from the four corners of the earth. Now, everything that I've said to this point is in one sense necessary if we're going to rightly understand the significance of our text for this morning. If we're to rightly understand the mission that you and I have been called to and given as well. That brings us to, then to Luke chapter 10 
We're going to be reading most of this section down through verse 20. You will follow along. We read from Luke 10, beginning at verse 1. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them on ahead in pairs to all the towns and villages he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is so great, but the workers are so few. Pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send out more workers for his fields. Go now and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money or a traveler's purse or even an extra pair of sandals and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter a house, give it your blessing. If those who live there are worthy, the blessing will stand. If they are not, the blessing will return to you. And when you enter a town, don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide you. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality, because those who work deserve their pay. If a town welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you and heal the sick. As you heal them, say, the kingdom of God is near you now. But if the town refuses to welcome you, Go out into the streets and say, we wipe the dust of your town from our feet as a public announcement of your doom. And don't forget, the kingdom of God is near. The truth is is that even wicked Sodom will be better off than such a town on the judgment day. Now down to verse 16. Then he said to the disciples, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. And anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. And anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them. I saw Satan falling from heaven as a flash of lightning. And I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. You can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice just because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered as citizens of heaven. Well, in these words taken from Luke 10, Jesus himself lays out the mission that he has given us for this age. And in the time that remains to us this morning, I want to look at that mission and make nine observations. Please, not nine main points. I'm not going to do that to you. But I've learned if I refer to them as observations, people are a little less frightened, okay? So these are just observations, folks. Don't think of them as main points. The first of these observations is this. The gravity of our mission is established and evidenced throughout Christ's commission. Whatever else may be true of the mission Christ has entrusted to us, it is no small or insignificant matter. In verse 2, he speaks of the harvest, the work to be done as great, and he says God himself is in charge of it. In verse 4, he says nothing, nothing must be permitted to deter us from its completion. In verse 7, he says those who undertake this mission are worthy of their hire. They need never apologize for the mission they've been sent on. In verses 13 and following, he tells us that men's response to our message will determine their eternal destiny. 
In verse 16, those who accept us are accepting God himself, and those who reject us in our mission are rejecting God himself. In verse 18, angels and demons and Satan himself will be affected by the success or failure of our mission. So, as for the gravity of our mission, it can only be referred to as immense, huge, awesome, eternally important. I love the Old Testament word for glory, the glory of God, the purpose of God. That word is a word from the Hebrew that means heavy. There's nothing light about it. There's nothing lightweight. There's nothing insignificant. The purpose and the plan of God for the ages is heavy. It's weighty. It has gravity. And that's the mission you and I have been given. It is a worthy, a worthy mission. Summer after my junior year in college, I took a, a, a tutorial class in my field of, of studies, which was communication. And it was during that summer that I found myself wrestling with a very, very basic question. Exactly what was it that I was going to spend my life communicating? So I just spent three years focusing on the process of, of communication, written and spoken. And I thought I had a pretty good handle on how communication happens. But now the question that had come before me was, so Marty, what's your message? What do you have to say? Every author has to have a subject. Every preacher better have a text. Every person on a mission better have a message and know what it is. I want to share with you that 50 years later, I can honestly say to you that I have never, not even for one day, regretted, regret, regretted the conclusion I arrived at that summer. Christian, there is no more momentous, no more worthy theme than the good news that sinful men can be reconciled to their God by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, is the message and the mission that our Lord has entrusted to us. It is heavy, heavy. The second observation I would make about the mission Christ has entrusted to us is that the dependency, the dependency of those being sent must rest squarely upon the one sending them. In verses 1 through 4, Jesus establishes the fact that the success of the mission he has assigned us depends entirely upon him. In verse 1, he chose those he would send out, and he sent them. In verse 2, the resources to accomplish all he sent them to do were well beyond their means. He said, the harvest is great. The harvest is too great. So what are we to do? Pray to the Lord who is in charge. I love the way that comes across, by the way, in the New Living Translation. I'm not real familiar with this translation, but I just love the way it comes across there. Pray to the God who is in charge. And to make certain that they never forgot their dependence upon God for the completion of this mission, he tells them in verse 4, in a very practical way, hey, don't take along any extra money or a traveler's bag or even a pair of sandals. Why not? He didn't want them to begin to view the success of their mission as dependent on human resources. Is that to say that God will never use the resources of this present age to advance his kingdom work? Well, if that were true, we wouldn't have had to take that offering this morning. But we took it, didn't we? 
In fact, Scripture calls on God's people in every age to give generously to support the mission of the church. But even as we give and plan and strategize and build, even as we stockpile resources for our worldwide mission, we must never forget that the accomplishment of our Christ-given mission is entirely in the hands of the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. That principle can still be observed in our world today. I spoke earlier of the rapid growth of the church in our age, 70,000 new converts a day. But where is that taking place? Not in the West, not in the Western Hemisphere, where each year hundreds of millions of dollars are invested in new and bigger church buildings and multiple church staffs and the latest of everything. No, it's taking place in house churches in China and among the poor in Africa and Latin America. It's not too much to say that if America and, and Western Europe do experience another revival, another forward thrust in Christ's mission, it will be not because we find some new evangelistic tool or because we give record amounts of money to our churches, but because we pray the Lord of the harvest who is in charge. I'm going to make an observation here. Oh, this is an extra one thrown in just for you free. <laughs> and it's, it's not just about you. It's about me, okay? We're ready to do, we evangelicals are ready to do just about everything but pray for the success of Christ's mission. We'll give, we'll organize, we'll send, some of us will even go, but we won't pray. Until we come to an end of ourselves, until we have tried everything else and come away empty-handed. Luke reminds us, the Lord chose, the Lord sent. The Lord said, remember that I am sending you. The Lord said, don't stockpile supplies. The Lord said, do pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. A third observation about this mission. The danger attending this mission is very real. Verse 3b, remember that I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Everybody understands that wolves are the enemy, the natural enemy of sheep. Jesus himself faced many wolves as a result of his mission from the Father. And he knew that his followers likewise would face many wolves, many enemies. Notice, there are no specific enemies mentioned here in the text. The warning is a general one. It's a reminder that the enemies of God, those who are sent out, the enemy of those that God sends out, are going to be diverse over the centuries but that there will be enemies, there will be wolves, that's certain. And that Christ-sent ones would be as innocent as lambs among them, that too is certain. And Christ, true to his character, has no intention of sending us out without openly disclosing the dangers associated with our mission. In fact, the Greek makes it clear that Jesus made a special effort 
to emphasize the danger here. We don't get it in our English. I can't think of a, an English translation that brings this over. But in the Greek, it's very clear. This verse, verse 3, begins with the word, Behold, listen to me. That's what Jesus said when he, when he wanted to get the attention of his disciples. Listen to me. Behold. And then he said, I'm sending you out like lambs. He didn't even say sheep. Matthew said sheep. Luke, Luke records that Jesus said lambs, little baby sheep. Helpless, defenseless. The history of the church's mission over the centuries does very little to soften Christ's warning, does it? Go to the pages of Hebrews chapter 11 and we learn what happened to those who in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant spoke the word of God. They were sawn in two. They were, they were strung up. They were cut in half, sawed in half. The record goes on and on how the enemies of Christ, the enemies of our Lord and King have always been present in every age. Some of you have dared to pick up along the course of the years, through the course of the year, Fox's Book of Martyrs. I can't sit down and read that in its entirety. I read a chapter and then I have to put it away for a year and come back to it a little bit later. Page after page of descriptions of how God's people carrying out the mission that Christ has given us have been treated by the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you hearing, hearing, uh, sitting here this morning know what it is to experience the attack of wolves because of your faith. You know what it is to face criticism, maybe even mockery, abuse, loss of a job perhaps. Some of you have been ostracized in a certain setting because of your faith and your, your word for Jesus. In other parts of the world, the dangers of taking up his mission include prison, torture, even death. It may not be long before the wolves in our own culture take up some of those same tactics. Could be. And how are we Christ-sent ones to respond to all this? It's a good question. Because all across America, Christ's little lambs, his sent ones, are buying up guns in record numbers. No doubt because we sense that the wolves are coming and we want to be ready. But Christ leaves us with no defense strategy. Only a command. Go now. And remember that I am sending you. Or as Matthew put it, be sure of this. I'm with you always. A fourth observation about our mission. The urgency of our mission is seen in our refusal to be distracted even by good things. Verse 4b, and do not greet anyone on the road. I don't think they expected to hear that. This counsel not to stop and greet fellow travelers along the, the way was almost unthinkable in the culture of Jesus' day. Only the most rude, the most impolite of travelers would fail to stop and dialogue with a stranger. But this fact only makes the counsel of Christ on this matter all the more striking because it's Jesus' way of saying to us that when we are engaged in the mission of making his good news known, nothing else, certainly not social niceties, must be permitted to delay the fulfillment of that mission. 
any activity that consumes our time and even delays the communication of our message of God's salvation has to be viewed as the enemy of Christ's call on our lives. I had a father who was uh, gifted as a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, as an evangelist. We're all witnesses, but he was gifted as an evangelist. Had a real heart for sharing Christ wherever he went. It was true in all of his life. It was just a way of life for him. And one of my favorite stories about dad is after he'd had his second bypass surgery, a doctor came to the waiting room and he said, "Um, we need you to go into recovery your dad somehow managed to do what is unheard of. He got something in his hand, and he won't let it go. And he went through the whole surgery, and we just discovered he's got something in his hand. He's not, he's not letting go of that. We need to find out what it is, and we need you to come in and talk with him. So I went in and said, Dad, you know, they want to know what's in your hand. Oh, he said, you know, through this fog. Oh, he said, it's, a, it's an address. It's a phone number. I said, what? He said, you know, just before the surgery... By the way, he wasn't expected to come through this surgery. I was talking with the attending nurse and sharing with her. Guess what? About the love of Jesus. And I said to her, you know, if I make it through this surgery, I would love to meet with you sometime and just talk with you about the God that loves you. And he said, she jotted down her her address and her phone number and put it in my hand. She must have thought I would drop it or something would happen. But he said, that's what that is. And son, would you take that and make sure I get it when I get home so I can contact her? Christians have many thoughts along the way, many last thoughts, many last things to do, many things to do in the course of every day. But only one of them is really urgent. And it has to do with our mission. Fifth observation about our our mission, the integrity of our mission requires that we not seek personal advancement or special considerations from those who receive us. In verses 5 through 7 of our text, Jesus tells the 72 how how they are to treat the folks who offer hospitality to them. How do you treat them? Well, he says you bless them. And if they prove worthy of your blessing, your blessing will rest on them. And if not, it'll return to you. I don't know exactly what Jesus meant by that, but that's what he said. And he said, when someone opens their home to you, stay there as long as you're in that town. Be thankful for what they provide by way of food and lodging. Don't go looking for a better option. I remember some years ago being on a choir from a little... uh, Christian College in Canton, Ohio, and we'd go out and we'd present concerts, and we sometimes would travel to different states. We went to New York, New Jersey, and so forth, and as we traveled, we would get back on the bus the following morning, and somebody would say, I slept in a king-sized bed, and you know what I had for breakfast? And they had a pool, and we really had a wonderful time, and somebody else would say, huh, you know, I got a straw cot, you know, it's about... Jesus says, it isn't about what you get. It isn't about what you're looking for. You're not looking for a better deal. You're carrying a mission to a world of lost people. And that's your focus. Don't let it ever be said that you were looking for a better deal as a Christian. 
On the other hand, he says, don't apologize for your reason for being there. Don't cheapen the mission you've been called to by bad-mouthing it. Don't say, no, I won't receive your food. I won't receive anything from you because, because I just feel, you know, we're just servants. I'm nothing but a worm for Jesus. Don't do that. Upon first reading, this seems like such a small thing for Christ to take three verses to talk about. But when we reflect on the way in which all too many modern-day servants of the Lord have compromised the gospel by their lack of integrity, we might think again. There are those who demand certain levels of pay and personal benefits in order to present the gospel. There are those who leave one ministry to take up another where the pay is better. There are those who play down the idea of God's calling on their life. There are those who indulge in coarse language or abusive of alcohol, or they lord it over others, or in any one of a number of ways, they fall short of the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They make it cheap, something that can be bought. And we can only wonder how often the world rejects our message, not because our Savior is unattractive, which He is not, but because of our lives, because our lives fail the test of integrity, honesty, and concern, genuine concern for others. A sixth observation about our, our mission the message of our mission is the nearness of God's kingdom as seen in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Verses 8 through 11. In verse 9, he says, Say to people, say to those you meet along the way, the kingdom of heaven is near you now. Now. Verse 11. Don't forget the kingdom of God is near. Of course, now, the 12 and later the 72 had a distinct advantage over us when proclaiming the message of God's nearness. They could simply point toward Jesus and say, there he is now. The nearness of God's kingdom in your midst. And Jesus would do the rest. After all, he was the message of God in flesh. To see him was to see the grace and the compassion and the truth of God himself. Of course, not everyone believed his message. Even that. That's what Jesus is talking about in verses 13 through 16, by the way, when he says, there are folks on the day of judgment who are going to stand before me without any excuse because they saw God in the flesh and they turned away from him. But although you and I can't point to the physical, the physical Jesus today, we can point to his word. We can point to the Bible and to numerous powerful evidences in creation and the heavens, things that give evidence of his kingdom rule over our world even today. And because he is the sovereign God and the king of the world, it is always true to say of him that he is near. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 2.20, he said, From the time the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky and all that God made. They can see his invisible qualities, his, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for saying they don't know him. And as for Jesus, the scriptures and the Spirit of God bear powerful witness to his oneness with the Father. 
So even today, 2,000 years later, since his days on earth, our message is that the name of Jesus, Jesus whose life is recorded in the Gospels, is near today and coming soon to call men and women to accountability. There is, by the way, one more way, one more powerful evidence of Jesus' nearness today that I think we sometimes forget or don't take full advantage of. And I refer to the unparalleled sense of his presence when two or more of his followers gather in his name. Our opening choruses this morning emphasize that. Did you catch that? The sense, the awareness of God's presence when his people gather in his name. Many an unbeliever, many an unbeliever has come to faith in Christ as a result of time spent in the presence of a handful of believers who have gathered to study God's word, pray, and share the joys of Christian life. For some years, Sherry and I always had a, a study, a Bible study going in our home over a number of years. We made it our practice to always have believers and unbelievers in that group. And our experience was that after a few months, it was more often than not the case that some of those unbelievers had come to recognize in our presence the presence of Jesus Christ. The power of his presence when his people are together, praying, studying, believing him, living out the life of Christ is a powerful evidence of his presence. In such a setting, the message of his nearness can actually be felt and experienced by those whom he is calling to new life. A seventh observation. See, we're getting there. Did you know? We're just we're getting there. Seventh observation about our mission. The consequences of our mission is either life or death. In verses 12 through 16, Jesus reminds the 72 that a great day of judgment is coming and that on that day men will be judged according to how they responded to our message. In verse 16, he goes so far as to say that those who accept our message, our message and our mission concerning the Christ will actually be accepted by God himself, and those who reject our message will be rejected by God himself. Once again, we're confronted with the gravity of our mission, aren't we? To put it another way, the mission Christ has assigned us passes the so what test. Well, the vast majority of humans spend their days on this earth without any mission, much beyond caring for themselves and a few of their closest loved ones. The follower of Christ is engaged in a mission that has eternal consequences for scores of men, women, and children. The unbeliever may come to the end of his or her days still asking, so what was it all about? What was the meaning? What was the purpose of my life? What did it really matter? But the serious believer need never stumble over that question. His or her mission on earth is both clear and worthy. To glorify Christ, this is our purpose, to glorify Christ and to make his message of salvation known to all who will hear it. And the consequences for his mission are a matter of life or death. An eighth observation about the mission Christ has called us to. The nature of our mission is spiritual warfare. Verses 17 through 19. When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him. And what did they say? Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yeah, he said. Yeah. I saw Satan fall from heaven as a flash of lightning. 
And I have given you authority over the power of the enemy. When at the outset of their mission, Jesus warned of wolves who would seek to devour them, the 72 may well have had in mind evil, murderous men. And indeed, in every age, there are such folks around. But here in verse 17 through 19, Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms that our real enemies will be spiritual in nature. They will be demons and evil spirits and Satan himself. These, and not some godless politician or nasty neighbor or world dictator or political party, these are the real enemies of our mission. And we would do well to remind ourselves of this lest we confuse the enemy of our mission with the mission field. Paul says it in Ephesians 6.12, for we're not fighting against people made with flesh and blood. Oh, no, 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 we're not, because they're the mission field. People are the mission field. They say we're not fighting against people. They're the ones for whom Christ died. We're fighting, against, we're fighting against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world and against mighty powers of darkness and wicked spirits. You say, man, that is scary stuff. I think I'll take a pass. I think I'll turn in my Jesus badge. I'm not up for that. You're not alone. It was the Apostle Paul himself who said, who's worthy? Who's adequate for these things? Well, wait a minute. Verse 19, Jesus says, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. In verse 18, in some way that we can't fully understand, he tells us even Satan's eventual fall, his eventual defeat at the hands of Christ, is in some sense also, also a result of our faithful mission to a world of lost men. In response to the ministry of the 72, Jesus looks out across history to the day of judgment and he sees Satan falling from his spiritual realm into the pits of hell. And he ties it somehow to the faithfulness and the success of a mission that he's given to those men and women. Are we involved in a serious conflict? Oh, you bet we are. Are the enemy worthy opponents? Uh-huh. Should we be scared? Nope. Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. One final observation about our mission. The joy resulting from our mission will be second only to the joy we experience as citizens of heaven. When the 72 disciples returned, verse 17, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, they said, even the demons obey us when we use your name. And in these words, taken directly from the text, we hear this incredible joy present in the servants of the Lord. It's no small matter to read of the joy experienced by the 72 as they, they carry out their God-given mission. Because up to this point, we've been stressing the gravity, the seriousness, the consequences, and the warfare that are part of our mission. But now, now, as these men and women return from their mission for our Lord, it's joy that takes center stage. You should have seen us, Jesus. You should have seen us. 
And for his part, Jesus enters into their celebration. Yeah, he says, I saw. I actually saw Satan. You think you saw Satan? I saw Satan falling from his position in the heavens. And then he adds, but don't rejoice just because. Just because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered as citizens of heaven. The witness of Christ's followers through the ages has never been that our mission is easy. But that their greatest joys in this life have been experienced in the process of carrying out the mission that Christ assigned to them. It is not a a thankless job that God has given us to rob us of the greater joys of this age. It is rather a joy, a delight, second to none in this lifetime. And yet Jesus reminds them that there is an even greater joy that awaits them. Don't rejoice just because of the joys you experience in fulfilling the mission I've given you to accomplish. Remember that the disciples' greatest joy still lies ahead of them. Even now, your names are registered in heaven. You got, res- you got reservations, folks. Your names are recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you're secure in His eternal hand. Well, there you have them, nine observations about the mission Christ has given you and me to carry out until he returns. Some years ago now, he came across a a comment made by, of all people, Woody Allen. You say, what kind of junk do you read to be reading after? Well, okay. And in this interview with him, uh, they picked up a a comment he had made in um, Stardust Memories, whatever that is. And in this setting, he's talking to himself, as Woody Allen often did. And this is what he's saying to himself. Let me tell you something. You're not the missionary type, Woody. You'd never last. You want to do mankind a service? Tell a funnier joke. I read that and I thought, strange as it may sound, I think that's a conversation some of Christ's followers have with themselves at times. You know, this business of being a, a, a witness, a, a, being on a mission for Christ, it's, it, that's all fine and good. That's interesting stuff. But I'm not really the missionary type. Um, the best I can do is maybe tell a few funny stories and make a few people a little happier along the way. Just, I'll be nice. I'll be nice. No, but you are the missionary type. Exactly the type of men and women that God has given this great commission, this great calling, this great sending to. You've got the best story ever given to mankind. And it can do more than give people a few moments of laughter. It can offer them an eternity of joy in the presence of their Lord and Savior. Spirit of God, for this incredible mission that you've given us, we give you thanks. So often we fall short, and yet we're so thankful that this isn't given to us as some heavy duty, but as the joy of our lives. May we find you rich and full and satisfying in all of our days as we carry out our mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.